Our scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A couple of weeks ago, uh, we looked at Isaiah's vision of the holiness and the glory uh, of God, particularly the pre-incarnate Christ. Uh, he also had a vision of himself uh, in the light of that glory and holiness. And then we saw... Um, a picture, a vision of God's mercy to Isaiah as he took away his guilt, as he atoned for his sin. And then we see Isaiah's response to that, here am I, send me, presenting himself to serve God in the light of what God had done uh, for him. Uh, at some level, it's a picture of the Christian life. Uh, the Christian life is an Isaiah 6 life, really. Uh, you've seen the holiness of God. You've seen uh, yourself in the light of that holiness. You've seen his mercy. And then the only response to that is, do with me what you will. Take, take me where you will and I'll serve you. Uh, last week we drilled down a little bit on the um, taking away of the guilt and the atonement for sin through 1 John chapter 1. This morning we're going to look uh, from the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. Uh, we're going to look at an essential attribute of true faith uh, in the light of God's holiness and mercy uh, in Christ. And one of the uh, one of the great apologetics of the, of the Christian faith. Uh, there's nothing you can find in the Bible that someone won't argue with you about. Uh, you, can, you can pick a subject, you can pick a, you can pick a, a inerrancy, you can pick um, you know, uh, divinity of Christ. I mean, you can pick any, any subject you want to in the Bible and somebody will, will find a way to argue with you. But when you love them, uh, when you sacrificially love them and ask nothing in return, there is no argument against that. There's just simply none. And that's some of what we'll see um, today. Three things, uh, headings. Uh, we're going to look at the setting of the story. We're going to look at the story of the story. And we'll look at the significance of the story. Let me pray. Gracious Father, we are 
grateful for the salvation that you give us freely. Uh, it's costly, but it's free in the Lord Jesus. We pray that it would be the fuel in the tank of our lives, that it would propel us into love for you and every single person that comes across our path or paths we cross. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so first, the setting of the story. Um, apparently, uh, at a gathering where Jesus was teaching, a lawyer, uh, a professional expert uh, on the law of Moses, stood up to ask Jesus a question. It wasn't a genuine question because the text tells us that he asked the question, uh, quote, to put him to the test, to put Jesus to the test. He hoped to ask him a question where Jesus would answer it in such a way that it would um, show disdain for the law of, of Moses. Uh, he would say something objectionable. It was a trap is what it was. And here's the question. It says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And as he often did, Jesus answered his question with a question. Uh, and he said this. He says, well, he says, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer, being the learned man that he, he was, he responds with a, a summary of the law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Same thing Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22 when he summed up the law. And then Jesus looked at him and said, you have answered correctly. You do this and you will live. Hmm. Let me expand on that answer a little bit. Mr. Lawyer, you continue perfectly 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, every single second of your life to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Do that and you will live. Well, what was Jesus doing? Was he telling the lawyer that you can earn your way into heaven by obeying the Ten Commandments? No. What he was doing was he was assaulting the lawyer at the heart of his belief system. He went straight to the heart of the business. He was holding up for the lawyer the mirror of God's law so that the lawyer could see how far short of its standards that he really fell. That he might see the futility of trying to earn his way into heaven by keeping rules, particularly the law of God. You know, there was an old evangelism uh, technique that a lot of people that are my age learned back in the, I'd say maybe the 80s and the 90s. It was called evangelism explosion. Some of you may have been through those classes. Um, and the, you would just go, I mean, you might go to a laundromat and just walk up to somebody with a questionnaire, uh, or you might visit people who had visited the church. And when you did, you always had you make a little small talk for a while, and then you'd ask them two questions. And the first question you'd ask them is this. Hey, let me ask you a question. Um, if you died tonight, are you 100% certain you'd go to heaven? Most people would say no. Most, many Christians would say no because they had no assurance of, of faith, but, but they were genuine Christians. But many other people would say no. And then you'd say, okay, well, let me ask you one more question. Would you mind if I asked you another question? No. If you did die tonight and you did go to heaven and God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And it's at that point that the real diagnosis began to come out. So if I'm asking y'all this question and I say to you, and you died and went to heaven and God asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Now, don't say it out loud, but some of you are sitting here saying, some of you are saying, well, because I've, you know, I've, tried, to be a, I've tried to be a good person. I've tried to live a good life. 
Uh, or as uh, uh, once I went out with a trainer who was training me in EE and we went to someone's house and he asked that second question and the man said, well, I tried to keep the Ten Commandments. And my trainer said, which are? You see, there's this sense of I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep this stuff I'm going to keep this stuff perfectly. I try to be a good person. I try to love my neighbor. I try to do all these things, whatever it is. But the subject of the sentence is always I. I try to do this. I did this. One of the writers I was looking at said, you know, you, know, you, you look at somebody and they, they say, well, I think I've lived a pretty good life. And, and you know, he, he said, you look at them and you say, compared to what? Compared to other people? You think you lived a good life compared to the law of God? Not a chance. The only person who obeyed the commandments of God perfectly died on a cross for the sins of believers who did not and could not perfectly obey those same commandments. So to the lawyer, what he's saying is this. Do you really think that you have for one second in your life loved the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do you really think you've loved your neighbor as yourself 24-7? Basically what Jesus is saying to him, he says, you've read the law. How do you read it? He says it, and Jesus says, you go and do likewise. Jesus, I mean, not go and do likewise. He said, do that and you'll live. In, in essence, what Jesus is saying is this, have at it. You have at your own standard. And it's almost as if the lawyer... You know, he, he, didn't understand, he didn't understand the futility of seeking salvation through perfect obedience to the law. And so he couldn't understand grace. Uh, one of the, you know, one of, the uh, one of my old professors said, you know, that in verse 27, the two great commandments in the law are not a solution. They're a problem. And it's a problem that drives us to Christ. Jesus knew this lawyer hadn't kept any of the commandments and based on his next question, it looks like the lawyer may have begun to realize it too. It's almost like he got a little defensive. You know, how, you know what must a man do to inherit eternal life? Well, you just, what do you, how do you read it? Well, you keep the law. Oh, really? Well, then do this and you'll live. It's like, ooh, wait a minute. I better ask him another question. And so it says, but the lawyer... But the lawyer seeking to justify himself asked the second question. And who is my neighbor? Tell me who must I love as myself so that I don't mistakenly love people that I shouldn't love. I don't, I don't want to love people that I don't have to love. What's the bare minimum that I can do in order to keep the law to love the neighbor, my neighbors myself? What's the smallest circle of people that I can concentrate on? And then, of course, Jesus could have said this when he said, when he said, who is my neighbor? Jesus, Jesus could have said everyone. He could have said every single person that you come across in life is your neighbor. And guess what? He would have been right. Galatians chapter 6.10, insofar, insofar as it depends on you, do good to all men. But that's not how he answered the question. How do you answer it? He answered the lawyer's second question with a story. And it's a story aimed at piercing the lawyer's heart and piercing his conscience. So let's look at the story. That's the setting. But what about the story? Um, you know, it's a very simple factual scenario. 
man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, distance of about 15 miles. It's an isolated road. It's a barren road. It's a road, if you want to, if you want to hijack somebody, if you want to mug somebody, it's a great road, especially for people who are unprotected, particularly ones traveling alone. So the guy, he's uh, attacked by these robbers. They take all of his stuff. They beat him severely. They leave him half dead. Well, by and by, a priest, a Jewish minister from the tribe of Levi, a priest is going down the road, and when he saw the man, he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Why? We don't know. Maybe he thought the man was dead. Maybe he didn't want to become ritually defiled. Uh, maybe he was scared about getting mugged himself. Maybe he thought, hey, these guys might still be nearby and they may get me. Uh, maybe he had pressing business in Jericho. Maybe there was nobody around to see the good deed. There were no reporters. Maybe he just wanted to get home. Kind of like driving down Highway 6 at the end of a busy day. You've been at work since 6 o'clock in the morning. You're really, really tired. You're almost home, and you look on the side of the road. There's a car with an obvious flat, and there's an old lady standing by the car with a phone. Well, at that moment, you go, oh, I'm so glad she's got a phone, because now she'll probably call somebody else. Maybe that's what he had. Maybe he just was wanting to get home. But whatever the reason, he saw the man and he passed by. Next, a Levite. This will be kind of a Jewish ministry assistant. All priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. And so he likewise came to the place where the injured man was. He saw him, and he passed by on the other side. But, but, the story says, but a Samaritan, whoo, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed he came to where he was, and when he saw him, just like the other two saw him, he had compassion. Reminds me a little bit of Jesus when it says and that he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. This, this, this Samaritan had compassion on this injured man, and he did all the things we see in verses 34 and 35. He went to him. He bound up his wounds. He poured on oil and wine. He set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day, he took out two days' wages. That's two days' wages that's described here. Two days' wages gave him to the innkeeper, and then he said, look, you take care of him. He stayed all night, by the way. You take care of him, and whenever, and whenever more you spend, I will, repay, I will repay you when I come back. Now, it's important to know that for the Jewish law expert, Jesus could not have used a more surprising or a more repulsive example of a neighbor than a Samaritan. You know, the Samaritans descended from the Hebrews who intermarried with the pagans after the Assyrians had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and taken them off into exile in 722 B.C. They were mongrels. They were half-breeds in the eyes of the, of the Jews, particularly the lawyers and the priests and the Levites. To the Jew, the only good Samaritan was a dead Samaritan. And the truth of the matter is, had the Samaritan been the guy laying in the road, there wouldn't have been a problem because he would have said, well, the priest and the Levite used good judgment. They should have passed by him if he was a Samaritan. But to make the Samaritan the good guy, man, that was, that was, that was pushing it. In fact, as one of my old teachers said, it, you know what Jesus was essentially saying to the law expert? He said, look, lawyer, by your standards, the Samaritan goes into the kingdom before you and the priest and the Levite do. Do you not see the lovelessness in your religion? Do you not see your need for repentance? 
Why do you have such lovelessness? Maybe it's because you don't understand God's love. This story, not so much showing the lawyer what he should do as what he does not do. For all of its rules and formalism, Judaism was cold and dead. There was no life in it because there was no love. One can be equally religious and unredeemed. You can come to this church every Sunday and be a stranger to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I tried to think of this story. I tried to figure out a way to do this story in a way that, because nobody here knows anything about a Samaritan, I don't think. I mean, other than what I just told you, some of you may have known that. But, I mean, priests and Levites and roads over in Jericho and Jerusalem, I mean, it's all sort of abstract. I thought, how can I, how could this become relevant? And I don't really know that these really help a lot. But I was trying to figure out, what if you changed the characters? What if you made the characters this? What if you made the uh, injured man a white man, the priest a white man, and the Levite a white man, and the lawyer a white man? So the white guy walks, the white guy gets injured. The white guy walks by him, passes by on the other side. White guy passes by on the other side. The lawyer's white guy, he's kind of taking in the story. And then all of a sudden uh, Jesus says, but a black man, as he was journeying, he stopped when he saw him and he did all of these things. Now there was a time, maybe it's still here today, and maybe it's still here with some people in this room. There was a time when that would have gotten a preacher probably fired from a church in Mississippi. But then I thought about some other examples. I said, well, what about this? And, and I don't want you to laugh at this because as I said in the first service, I really don't mean this to be funny. Let's say the lawyer and the injured man and the priest and the Levites, they're all Ole Miss people. They're rabid Ole Miss fans. And the Samaritan is actually a state fan. Now, here's why I say that. And I'm not saying it applies to everybody in this place. But there is such vitriol between Ole Miss fans and state fans and between state fans and Ole Miss fans among many professing Christians that that story actually would probably get some traction with some people. But whatever, however you want to do it, when he's finished telling the story, Jesus turns the lawyer's question on his head. He says, the question is not who is my neighbor. He says, the question is to whom are you a neighbor? So it's not who is my neighbor. I want to limit this, but it's more to whom are you a neighbor? Which of these three, Jesus asked him, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer couldn't even say the guy's ethnicity. He couldn't say it. He couldn't say the, 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 he couldn't say the Samaritan. So what did he say? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. You go and actively love all the needing, hurting people that you come across in life. So that's the setting of the story and the story of the story. Well, what's the significance of the story? Several things we're reminded of. First, because sin always seeks to limit love, Sin always seeks to limit love. Sin always will seek to limit whether or not to help a particular needy person. 
I don't know if I should help this person. Should I really help them? Should I stop? Should I go out of my way and do this? There's a book called Ministries of Mercy, uh, The Call of the Jericho Road. And in the very beginning of it, it says this, mercy to the full range of human needs is such an essential mark of being a Christian that it can be used as a test of true faith. Mercy is not optional. It's not an addition to being a Christian. Rather, a life poured out in deeds of mercy is the inevitable sign of true faith. Mercy is a lifestyle. As James said, Faith without works is dead. So mercy, sin will always seek to limit whether to help somebody. Second thing is, because sin always seeks to limit love, sin will always seek to limit who we help. That's what this was about. Who is my neighbor? And yet the Bible tells us, the gospel teaches us that mercy is no respecter of persons. We don't limit our help to people who are like we are. We never pass somebody by that we can help ever whether they're black or white or Asian or Indian or Christian or non-Christian, whether they're rich or whether they're poor, whether they're nice or whether they're mean. You mean you have to help mean people? Yes. You know, uh, one writer said that the Bible never talks about the universal brotherhood of man, but it does talk about the universal neighborhood of man. Somebody may not be my brother in Christ because he's not a believer, but he's still my neighbor, and I still have the opportunity to help him. I'm not called to like everyone, one writer said it. I'm not called to like everyone, but I am called to do what love requires to everyone, and that means bearing their burdens the best I can. You know, the half-dead man didn't have any concern about the ethnicity of the man who stopped to help him. He just wanted help. Third, because sin always seeks to limit love, sin always will seek to limit how we help. You know, love and mercy doesn't seek initially to limit how we help. It doesn't do this mental gymnastics to try to figure out, okay, what can I, what's the least I can do and get by actually feeling good about helping this person? You know, this guy's asking for too much help. No, love and mercy sacrificially addresses the full range of needs. This man had emotional needs, he had physical needs, he had medical needs, he had material needs, and the Samaritan met them all. The needs are going to vary from situation to situation. Doing good is going to look like different things at different times. Love doesn't initially put help off until there's time to analyze it and seek a remedy for all of the reasons someone's in need. There's plenty of time to do with, deal with that later. The Samaritan saw the needy man. He stopped and helped him with all of his felt needs. He didn't get into all of his business. There's time later to get in business. Love does not look for excuses in order not to help. Well, is it the deserving poor? Is it the undeserving poor? Again, there's plenty of time later to sort out these longer-term issues. But every time we seek to blame the needy for being needy or we seek excuses not to help, we're the lawyer. And we're seeking to limit our assistance in some way. In fact, the minute my mind begins to run, even just a little bit, into something that gives me an out, I'm being the lawyer. At some level, mercy simply means being present. It means being available to help. Again, all the Samaritan knew was that there was an injured man in the road. Didn't know anything else about him. In a nutshell, 
Mercy is compassionate action intended to relieve the sufferings of someone else, sufferings caused by sin, either theirs or someone else's. It's a lifestyle of pity plus action. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, while grace looks down upon sin as a whole, mercy looks especially upon the miserable consequences of sin. Fourth and last, because sin always seeks to limit love, sin will always seek to limit when to help. Look, mercy is messy. Mercy is messy. It's costly. It's really inconvenient. You know, bearing one another's burdens is just not that easy all the time. You know, without question, the Samaritan had somewhere to go. I mean, he, got a, he, he could have had a business meeting. He could have lost a contract. I mean, who knows? But he had somewhere to go. His schedule was shot. There's likely lots of blood on the Samaritan as he cleaned the injured man up. And he gets this guy's blood all over him. And then he has to loan him some clothes. So he's, now he's lost those clothes. He puts the man on his own donkey. Now he's got to walk beside the donkey as he leads the donkey, however many miles they had to go. Cost him a good bit of his, of his own hard-earned money, two days' wages. He stayed until the next morning to make sure the man was going to be okay. And then he guaranteed the man's future care. Look, most times, mercy, love and mercy, they don't allow us to control how or when we help. Needs don't run on a schedule. The Christian life is a life that's on call. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Let me close. At every level, our response to needy people says more about us than it does about the people we help. Interacting with the needs of others can show us how selfish we are, how condescending we are, how self-righteous we are, how our gospel priorities are upside down. I mean, in the midst of the meeting, it's so easy to either think or say, you know what? You should just be grateful for how much we're helping you. You ought to just be more thankful for what you're getting. Or look at your phone and see that number go, oh, not again. It is easy to keep score when you're helping others. Because once you help them, they owe you. Right? So here's the question. Why do we extend mercy? Why would anybody extend mercy to the needy? Why wade into the mess of someone else's life with kindness and relief? Now, there can be a number of answers to the question. I'll give you a few. Why would you help someone else? Well, you'd say because the Bible tells us to. This story tells us to. You could say, uh, you know, you need to be like the Good Samaritan. Uh, you could say that we live by some form of noblesse oblige. Any uh, French-speaking people in here? That's about it. That's about my limit of my French speaking. But I looked it up. I've heard of it many, many times. Noblesse oblige. You know what noblesse oblige is? I'll read you a definition of it. Noblesse oblige is the inferred responsibility of privileged people to act with generosity and nobility toward those less privileged. You have a responsibility with all you have to help others. Or perhaps you're enlightened. Perhaps you're uh, you know, in the intelligentsia, uh, perhaps you got a PhD and you just simply know that that's something that you're supposed to do. And all enlightened people know that, right? Sometimes we help people because we feel guilty and we feel better about ourselves when we help other people who are in need. And all of these are reasons to help, but none of them can give us staying power 
None of us can lead, none of these things can lead to a life of mercy and love lived out. As soon as the mercy starts to cost us something, maybe it's too much time or it's too much money or it's too much inconvenience or our life is at risk, as soon as it begins to cost us something, and if those are the reasons we're doing it, we will pass by on the other side. It just isn't enough to keep us in the game. And none of these things can prevent mercy burnout or self-righteousness or resentment toward the very people we're called to help. So how can we go and do likewise? How can we be effective, loving neighbors to hurting people? How can we help our children, parents? How can we help our children learn that life is not all about you? How do we help our children to learn love and mercy toward others? By looking at the Good Samaritan? No. By looking at this table, by beginning with this table and remembering everything that this table preaches to us. Do we, do we, do we, do we grow in love and mercy by putting ourselves in the place of the good Samaritan? No. We love in love, we grow in love and mercy by daily putting ourselves in the place of the man who was set upon by the robbers and who was beaten and who was left for dead. One writer says it, only when we do that, only when we put ourselves in the place of the beaten man, will we be moved to help others sacrificially, to enter into the poverty and needs of others, to bear the burdens of others, to be inconvenienced for others, only as we regularly remember how when we were helpless, we were helped by someone who'd owed us nothing but in compassion gave us everything, even Jesus Christ. Look, well, I don't want necessarily to make Jesus the good Samaritan in this story. I do agree that there is a pattern of God's mercy in Christ in this story. Anyone who has seen himself as the man lying in the road, as spiritually poor, as rescued to inherit a kingdom, will then live a life of generosity toward everybody in need. Love and mercy received is the only source of love and mercy extended. And I think that's the story of the Good, Good Samaritan. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we are thankful for all the blessings you have given us in Jesus. We're thankful for how when we were hopeless, really we, were, we weren't just injured. Uh, the scripture tells us we were dead. We were spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. And you came along and you saw us, uh, as it were, wallowing in our blood, in the words of Ezekiel, and you looked at us and you said, live. Would you send us as grateful children uh, with a message of grace and a message of mercy, but not just a message, a lifestyle, a lifestyle of mercy that our lives might make credible the message that we preach. And we pray it all in Jesus' name.